Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning, we have an honored guest, Dr. David Chalky. Thank you for being here, David. Yeah, Thank thanks you, for joining us. And we have Curtis from Texas joining us. Um, Howdy. He's in his palatial estate. I always say that because you have that <laughs> wonderful background there of those books. And I'm in yeah. California, Southern California. And Dr. Chucky, you're in Southern California too, right? Oh, yes. Are you uh, joining us from Los Angeles or Orange County? Orange County. Orange County. Okay. Well, welcome. Thank you. Dr. David Chucky has had a distinguished undergraduate teaching career at Biola University, teaching critical thinking and logic for how many years, Dr. Chalky? 48. <clears throat> 48? My mm -hmm. goodness. I'm glad I asked. I would have never known. 48 <laughs> years? Holy cow. I had the privilege and pleasure of uh, serving under Dr. Chalky as his TA. Um. I don't know that Dr. Chalky would describe it also as a privilege, <laughs> or, <laughs> but uh, because I seem like I was always struggling with time management during those early years, and it uh, seems like he had always had to get on me about getting the stuff back to the students, which I always appreciated. Dr. Chalky is, uh, has a reputation for always being on time and, and sensitive to the time issues with students, making sure they get feedback right away mm -hmm. so that they can incorporate it into their success. And oftentimes his classes were in the morning. Are they still in the morning, Dr. Chalky? Uh, yes, early morning. Early morning. 7.30, I would hope. Monday. 7.30 and 8.30, right. Are they Monday, Wednesday, Friday? They Tuesday. are. Uh-huh. Are they, do they start at eight o'clock? Well, one runs 7.30 to 8.20 and one 8.30 to uh, 9.20. Wow. So they're back to back in the same room. Okay, so maybe we should start there. That's interesting. You, you start at 7.30 in the morning there at Biola University. I can picture it now. And is that when you have the, is that a preference of yours? Or do the students email you and say, we prefer 7.30 if at all possible? <laughs> uh, no, it's, well, it's a preference of mine. It's what I'm used to. But over the years, it's getting harder to persuade students to sign up for early morning classes. And not just early morning classes, classes mm -hmm. that include a session on Friday, which is not a popular class day. So there's been a lot of cultural change over the years, and that's part of it. Um, so rather than teaching the course, <clears throat> excuse me, every semester, I'm now just going to do it in the fall semester where it's easier. We can turn freshmen into conscripts. Mm -hmm. And I mean that almost literally. We have yeah. the registrar is able to assign incoming freshmen to classes. And okay. that's one of the ways that we fill uh, early morning classes and, and Friday. I was wondering how in the world you do it. Is it, is it a, is logic a, uh, a required course at Biola? Uh, it's, it's just an option within the philosophy uh, GE requirement. So students have other options, but philosophy is one of them. So it meets a requirement, 
without being the requirement. <clears throat> okay. It's only a requirement for philosophy majors. Gotcha. And it's called logic. That's what it's called. The, the course that we're talking about. Well, introduction to <laughs> introduction to. Okay. And you're able to fill the spring versions of no, those? The, the, uh, <clears throat> I, until, well, even up through the pandemic, we did it in the spring as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but starting this year, it'll be just in the fall, oh, not wow. spring as well. For the first time in 49 years, it will be only in the fall? No. Uh, okay. I... I don't even remember what schedule we had in my early years. So I've probably been okay. doing this early schedule, maybe 30 years or so. So Gotcha. Uh, the early schedule, is it because you're a morning person? Do you, do you get, are you like a farmer? Do you get up really early? I, I do now and I have for some years, but, uh, I wouldn't so much say I am a morning person as I became one, maybe okay. out of necessity. And when we get used to something, it it's familiar and we get comfortable with it. And, uh, That's right. So, but for many students, as you know, they stay up very late. So early morning classes are tough. And many of them come from high schools where they start at uh, eight o'clock or earlier. Right. That's true. Uh, and yet they get into college and they stay up till two in the morning and um, there are no parents to uh, check on them, and uh, some of them uh, just really can't manage those early classes. Dr. Chalky, you said that there's been a, a change in culture in 48 years. You've seen a lot in 48 years here in Southern California. Um, I can't imagine that all of those changes you're, you celebrate those changes in, in culture <clears throat> and the students. Um, how do you maintain or do you maintain a, a optimism about what you do and um, where we're going in the future? <laughs> I hope that well, optimism specifically about teaching logic or optimism yeah. about teaching in general, optimism about teaching logic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and teaching in general, I guess, too. But yeah, really both. Well, let me start with uh, logic, basic logic. Uh, okay. It's my favorite course. It certainly wasn't originally. I taught it my first year at Viola and I did not know what I was doing. I gave my first exam and I made a huge mistake in how I set up the exam. Everyone failed the exam, my fault. <laughs> oh, no. uh, it was a really rough start. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> over the years, though, I've, <clears throat> excuse me, allergies kicking in. I have become convinced of the value of basic reasoning for everyone. Uh, and that value is so great that uh, I have no difficulty uh, being enthusiastic about uh, teaching the course. In fact, it helps keep me, if not young, at least not old, put it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, I walk in the first day of class feeling excited, almost like a brand new freshman. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember once before the first class session in logic, 7.30 in the morning, it was about seven in the morning. And back then my office was 
just a couple doors down the hall from the classroom where I taught lots, still do teach logic. And there was a knock on my door uh, and I opened it and it was a freshman. And uh, she was all excited about starting and wondered, you know, why there was nobody in the room yet. Uh, and I explained, well, it doesn't start for another half an hour, but her enthusiasm uh, and sense of freshness, of freshman and uh, uh, psychological sense uh, struck me and I realized that uh, I feel some of that myself. It's different being a teacher, but uh, there is a, an excitement about starting a course and knowing that it's going to be worth students' time. Not that necessarily I'll convince them it's worth their time, but that it is. Um, and it'll have a huge impact. In fact, I start the course now and I don't think I did it uh, this way, Curtis, when you were a student. Maybe I did. I don't know how long I've done it, but on the first day of class, um, and describing, which can be pretty boring in any class, what we'd be doing for the semester, uh, I make the following claim that of all the courses they take at college, whatever their major may be, that Intro to Logic will be one of the top two or three most valuable for their entire lives, and that I can guarantee that. Um, and uh, I make that claim, uh, I make it with confidence, <clears throat> and it tends to surprise students um, but then the rest of the semester is all about establishing that what I said was true. Um, the establishing, establishing of what I said as being true is not accomplished so much by me as by students when they discover the mm -hmm. difference that reasoning can make in their lives. Um, and I know you have only so much time, so I won't launch into a uh, a speech here. But oh, please, please, please. Speeches we, are what this is for, Dr. Like we have time. I already feel pulled back we're, into class, like I'm sitting <laughs> there. We're only concerned about your energy. That's our only concern. Right. We have time. Energy. Well, uh, you asked not just about teaching logic, about teaching generally, whether yes. we're teaching in college or at any. I mean, I love teaching, and I feel sad for anyone who has a job teaching anything at any time who doesn't love teaching. Mm. Uh, again, you're not going to get rich at teaching. At least very few people are going to get rich teaching. But uh, uh, many teachers truly love it, and that keeps us going. Um, also, I have to admit, uh, college professors tend in some ways to have it easier, at least if they make it through the tenure. Uh, than uh, K through 12 uh, mm -hmm. professors because or teachers yes. because uh, college professors have greater freedom, at least in many disciplines, what they do in the classroom and so on. We don't have as many rules made for us. But uh, whatever we're teaching under whatever circumstances, if you love teaching, uh, uh, you won't leave it unless you're virtually driven out of it. You're in poor health. You have financial need to do something else and so on. I mean, it's just, it's a calling, not just a job. And many teachers will, will uh, acknowledge that. Uh, as I'm sure, Lucas, you will in your own extensive experience. Uh, it really is a calling. Uh, and I'm very grateful to God that I've been able to still be there uh, after such a long time. I'll be 73 this summer. And so love teaching, again, logic, my favorite uh, course because of its impact upon people's lives. I also feel sorry for people who have to either teach something or sell something that they know is not of great value. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'm, I, I'm grateful uh, 
uh, I don't have to do that. Uh, of course, I wouldn't have been any good at it anyway. So <laughs> as well, I was never forced into doing that. So well, anyway, that's a, a brief response to your question of um, teaching Curtis. logic and teaching generally. Curtis, maybe we should uh, get your story in here. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, I mean, as you're talking about all that, um, I, I'm certain that you, if you didn't do it on the first day of class, I'm certain that you uh, made that point that the logic being one of the top uh, courses to take away from, from college. Of, of course, I, I knew that going in, but that was only because I had had you originally for uh, introduction to philosophy. That was the, my first introduction to you. And, and that, that, that class changed my life. I mean, it, it literally changed the course of my life. It changed the, changed a lot of things. And it was because I, for the first time had a teacher that could give me reasonable answers <laughs> it, it, to, to some of the hard things that, that I felt like I was always getting textbook answers to, you know, do you remember, uh, do you have an example? Uh, I, I can't. So they, they were questions about, uh, I, I, they always centered around theology um, and like, why, why don't we study in the church? Why don't we tend to study things earlier than the, the reformation? It seems like all of our theology starts at reformation. Like that was my experience growing up and, and uh, it always bothered me. And whenever I try to get further back, like, you know, cause Jesus lived before the reformation I discovered. Right. Uh, <laughs> but I never got really solid answers about things until I met you, Dr. Chucky. Um, and they were, and sometimes there were answers that were like, well, we don't know. Our best understanding is this and this and this, and that's your options to choose from. <laughs> and, and it was just refreshing to go, oh, okay. There's not a mystery to it. There's just time and distance. And now we have to employ our minds and use logic to determine what we think is is the best course. And that really inspired me to go on to logic. Um, so I was ready to eat it up. How that many times first, did, how many times did time you take logic? I took logic. <laughs> so we got to set this up. Curtis yeah, was a that, student of, of Chalky's. Um, Curtis, what year would this have been? Uh, this 90s? would have been, well, I think intro to philosophy was probably 95. Okay. I, I could so you were under my transcripts to be exact. But. Okay. So you're an undergrad student. You were not a philosophy major at that time. No, actually yeah. I came in as a biblical studies major oh. because I was really looking for those types of that type of, you know, answers. Yeah. Yeah. Answers. Gotcha. So you, did you, you took, you did, you signed up for Chalky's class because it was, um, convenient for your schedule or was there he looked at the book list and you thought oh that looks interesting actually i remember i remember talking to students we would network a lot and you know who do you take you know for this or who do you take for that and and uh i had met uh i want to say it was i don't know if it was will geisler that i had that i had uh talked to you know hey you know you're studying philosophy what uh uh, who, who should I take this person or that person? He's, and for intro, they, he said, oh, hands down, you want to take David Chalky. And, uh, and I said, okay, well, that's as good, that's good enough for me. And then that's, what, that's how it started. 
because because David Chalky doesn't raise his hands. He's not charismatic. <laughs> That's right. Hands down, <laughs> Dr. Chalky. Right. <laughs> okay. So how many times did you take logic? Because I, I want to just get uh, into that right now. You took logic with Dr. Chalky. How well, many times? Can I say three, three times, I, right? Before three, I actually put just that say on record. It, three times. This is on <laughs> this, this is the intro. This is what makes people want to listen to this. Wait, you took it three times. <laughs> Okay, Dr. Chalky, we wanted you on so you just you know so people could hear about you know my my tragedy. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, no, as inspiring as that first philosophy class was, I actually <laughs> took intro to philosophy twice. And this is no; these are no reflections on Dr. Chalky. This is everything about me. You know, like Wait, as far as why that had to happen, I just wasn't right, in a place in those places. Um, but interestingly, after I took intro to Phil the first time, that's then I went to logic and then I, I, I flunked out of logic, but I stayed the whole semester because I loved it. That's hilarious. <laughs> then I went back to intro to philosophy. I did a little bit better. I passed. And then I went back to logic and I tried it again. And I think that time I got a C minus or something. And, uh, then I had the opportunity to retake it again because I wanted to improve my grade. And every time I took it, I got a little bit better. I got a little bit more disciplined, but really I learned more and more. And I think I'm just a slow, slow learner often um, takes me a while to come around, but honestly, Dr. Chalky, you, you were like that coach, you know, like that coach you see in the movies that is like, and, and I'm not exaggerating, like just take one more step just one more step. You can do one more. And I really felt like that. It like a, uh, logic broke me and remade me. I mean, that's all I can say. And, and you were the, you were the, the coach that did that. What do you say? What do you say that? What do you say to that? Dr. Jockey? Well, uh, 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 Part of what you're describing, Curtis, is not only a general desire, a genuine desire to learn, but determination is obviously there. Not the kind of person to give up. Yeah. And, uh, um, I'm impressed by that. Um, it, it's fun to talk about how many times you took the course, but uh, <laughs> it's really what sort of what's behind that, deep inside you, that made you persevere. And, yeah. Uh, what most people would do if they had a hard time with the course is they would not come. Right. Yeah. But you did. So right. I maybe, find that maybe complain about but you. The, the take. It, I appreciate I really appreciate those words. Um, that's kind. The, the takeaway for me, though, for me, though, too, is I don't I wouldn't have come back if I didn't see the value in it also. And I wouldn't have seen the value in it um, if you didn't put into the course what you put into the course and put into the students. Um, sometimes I look back and I think, oh, how tragic how many that that of how many students could have had that opportunity in your class and and didn't you know or or didn't see it or didn't understand it or didn't catch it and i think oh what a loss for them um yeah because it was foundational to the rest of my career well i thank you for that and um frankly if i was made 
king of the university, I would require logic of everybody. That's, I remember uh, that. Amen. Definitely do that. Yeah, I Amen. haven't changed my view on that. So, um, Curtis, do you mind if I ask you something that you said you stayed the whole time, even though you were failing logic? Mm-hmm. That's an early morning class. So you, your issue wasn't being there in class it certainly wasn't cell phones back then yeah no now nowadays students are distracted with computers and cell phones so what was the issue do you think was it just the early morning you had a no you're you're a morning person right Mm. i i I would say i would say i want to be a morning person more than i am a morning person Um, so uh, you, you just had a hard time I had a hard time being on time to Dr. Chalky's class. That's for sure. Uh, but I never had a hard time getting to class. Well, I shouldn't say eventually. That. I mean, there <laughs> cer- certainly there were some mornings where I just didn't come, but, um, did but you the, miss you know, exams or something like that? Was that why you were failing? Did you know the material and you just weren't there? No, I wasn't applying myself. Okay. The first, the first, the first time I wasn't applying myself. All right. Well, I don't want to probe too much. I just was yeah. curious. No, that's that's fine. I don't mind. I mean, it's it's all in the past. I've overcome it. I think. <laughs> Doctor Chalky, you, uh, how do you um, do? Do you find that the students have a hard time paying attention in the early morning? Uh, are there any competition? Is there? Do you feel competition with phones or or laptops or anything? Well. Today, that's the case for almost all <laughs> teachers where mm-hmm. we're in competition. Uh, uh, but as for the early morning, uh, you know, there's a sense in which it doesn't matter what time a class is offered. Mm-hmm. Students' ability to engage, a willing, it's partly a matter of willingness, not just physical capacity. Mm-hmm. If someone is incredibly tired and exhausted, it wouldn't matter. I mean, the Lord Jesus could return and they'd still fall asleep through it. You know, <laughs> that would be uh, possible. But except in extreme cases, in uh, uh, my judgment, part of the job of a classroom teacher is to secure the attention of everybody there uh, by whatever means necessary. Uh, and whether that's competing with cell phones, with an early hour. Uh, and with the case of logic, the basic content of logic is not exciting for maybe one out of a thousand people would find basic logic itself uh, intrinsically interesting. I mean, uh, it's its usefulness that excites me. And uh, it's trying to get that across to students. Uh, and you said that I have the freedom here to go on a bit if I wish. Absolutely. As much as you like. So, yeah. uh, logic can be taught in a way that is deadening to the, the spirit. And even if it's not deadening to the spirit, it's pretty much a waste of time because most of what uh, the person learns in logic will be forgotten or it won't be applied uh, to life. Uh, Surely there's a number of good ways to teach basic logic. But uh, one thing that I've come increasingly to believe in is that uh, the value of introduction, uh, introducing a person to uh, reasoning if it's really going to be a valuable course, uh, the content needs to be as small in quantity as possible. Uh, and that quantity has got to be 
so clearly presented that it would take real effort not to learn the core of it. Um, uh, at church, I have an adult Bible class that meets in our K through eight school. And sometimes we met in the sixth grade classroom. Uh, well, usually we didn't meet in the school at all, but we've met in the sixth grade classroom, eighth grade classroom. And I mentioned that because walking into those classrooms, you see the walls covered with things that the teacher and sometimes the students have posted and including things such as lists of critical thinking skills. And I have a little booklet, uh, critical thinking, a little tiny booklet, supposed to make it easy to learn. It's like about 75 different important features of critical thinking in it. Uh, long lists rarely help people. And the term critical thinking really is an umbrella term. It covers so much that it's easy to become overwhelmed when you start thinking about it. Uh, it can be studied by the sociologist, the anthropologist, the psychologist, um, uh, and uh, we can talk about epistemic virtues, what are good moral qualities with respect to reasoning, and we can go on and on and on and on. And most people, even if interested, are going to forget most of what they've heard, and their lives are not going to be significantly changed. And so the way I do, do it now, and I don't know if it's developed much, Curtis, since you took the class, but perhaps a bit, is, uh, in fact, I don't think I talked about this particular aspect of it when you were in the class, uh, uh, I remind students or I help students to understand that making our way in the world depends upon a small set of indispensable tools. It's a very small set. Uh, there is sense experience, without which uh, we're in big trouble in terms of finding our way in the world. There's memory, there's testimony, and then there's reasoning. Uh, and the basic unit of reasoning is the argument. So what is an argument? Mm -hmm. uh, and how is it different from an assertion or an explanation? Uh, so what is an argument? So I want students to understand that uh, reasoning is one of a very short list of basic tools. We cannot do without these tools. We cannot function well. It doesn't matter what our life goals are. We need these uh, basic tools. We have them, but what we typically do is, at least with reasoning, we use them poorly uh, we never get decent training in them and we do a poor job. So I help students understand what, uh, you know, what is uh, an argument, be able to recognize arguments, distinguish them from non-arguments, classify arguments, deductive and non-deductive and certain uh, subtypes, uh, uh, analyze them, break them down into parts, showing their structure, and then uh, evaluate arguments. And as you know, that's going to be logical strength and factual strength. Those are the only two things you need to understand an argument's success or failure as an argument. And that's separate from asking about its cultural significance, its popularity, uh, the, the rhetorical ability of the person who presented it, and so on, all of which are interesting questions, but they're all peripheral what's at the core is what an argument is and how it relates to life. It's one of the ways we discover truths about the world, which helps us function in the world. And so uh, once students know, okay, reasoning, the basic unit is the argument. I know what an argument is. I know the difference between what is an argument, what is not an argument. Uh, I can recognize arguments by type, the basic types. I can break them down into their parts. And I know in any argument, to what degree am I justified in believing the premises are true, factual strength, and if those premises were true, 
uh, <clears throat> uh, to what degree would they make uh, us justified in believing that the conclusion was true? Um, and that's it. That's really it. I was reading an article by Alvin Plantinga. It's a complicated philosophy uh, article. And I remember by the time I got through it, I said, someone who knows the basics from intro to logic with no background in philosophy could still follow what he was saying, mm -hmm. could see the moves he made, could recognize, oh, this is an <laughs> argument and so forth. Um, and then I want to talk, of course, about the practical value of this in life. Uh, and I won't go on a great length about that now, but my, what I've come to be uh, utterly confident of is that the term critical thinking is not a helpful term because it's an umbrella term. Um, and umbrellas are useful in some ways, but uh, uh, well, the metaphor of umbrella doesn't work too well for what I want to say here, but I don't find the term uh, critical thinking particularly helpful because it is a term that covers so much ground that it's likely to overwhelm people when they start thinking about it and discourage people. Uh, but anyone who is not suffering from significant brain damage can learn to reason competently, maybe not world-class reasoning, certainly not, uh, but to reason competently and to gain some confidence from that, uh, to do a better job of making good decisions in certain aspects of life. Um, and we also talk about loving intelligently. Um, uh, we're called to love God with all we've got and our neighbor is ourselves. And a part of loving well is loving intelligently. Uh, if I want to do good for someone, I better have uh, a good basis for judging that this is good for that person and that is not. And reasoning is one of uh, the principal tools we have for uh, getting uh, true answers to, to that question. So um, I try to help students recognize that um, uh, if they want to be a loving, if they want to be loving people, uh, and they want to take that seriously, they need to love intelligently and a, a indispensable part of that is uh, reasoning. Um, and um, they can reason better. So anyway, I can go on and on and on, but you have a general idea. The teaching of logic with a mass of detail, and you have to have some detail. Mm -hmm. You've got to use a standard logic book and so on, and they're still going to forget parts of that. Um, uh, we, we go through detail, but over and over again, these basics, I'm trying to make these basics their permanent possession mm -hmm. so that they can leave with confidence uh, and use it the rest of their lives. So I think you can see why I get excited about, about this. Certainly. Yeah, you know, one of the things that you left us with, um, and I only kept one of the three copies, I, the, the most recent one, uh, was the sacred page. Yes, the sacred page. <laughs> the, right. the sacred page, the, uh, it, or I should say sacred pages. It got, I guess you said it grew over time. And yeah. I actually got to see you add a couple pages. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's been indispensable. I, I used that. I've, I've taught logic three times and uh, I've used it every time. And it's just been totally indispensable. Yeah. Well, thank you. Send, send me an email. I'll have to send you the revised version. I've, I've had to change the section of abductive reasoning. Mm. I've gotten uh, some new, not, haven't thought up anything new just from reading, realizing that's, that's clearly a better way uh, to present that. And the term oh, abductive okay. really isn't a synonym for inference to the best explanation. I mean, I've known there was a history to that, but uh -huh. um, 
making that distinction clearer is something I want to do this fall. I'd be very interested in hearing more about that. Yeah. Well, again, if you'll send me an email to, oh, you mean right now? Well, uh, sure. But yeah, we'll definitely get it through email later. But um, could you okay. say a little well, bit more about that? I know abduction well, is a where, felony. Where but, I ran across it, I wasn't reading a logic book. I was reading uh, Stephen Meyer's recent book, The Return of the God Hypothesis. Hmm. And um, uh, of course, you know, he's a philosopher of science. Uh, so he is presenting abductive reasoning and inference to the best explanation as distinguished in the following way. And it's not original with him. And I believe it's a very valuable way to think about it. So if you take, for instance, uh, 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 an invalid uh, you know, mixed hypothetical, if P then Q, Q therefore P, uh, we're, a wait a minute. This happens to me in class occasionally. I have a brain freeze. Where <laughs> am I going with this? Um, yes. Uh, affirming the consequent, you know, if P then Q, Q therefore P, that's invalid. It's affirming the uh, consequent. Uh, and so um, that's an invalid argument. But if I say if P then, in other words, I, it's, it's, uh, uh, a logic mistake to say if P then Q, Q therefore P, P doesn't follow. Right, but right. if I say if P then Q, Q therefore possibly P, mm -hmm. that is to say uh, P uh, remains as a possible explanation of uh, Q, uh, if it is true that if P then Q, and if it is true that Q, then it is true that it is possible that uh, the existence of Q uh, would lead us to believe uh, that P was uh, actually true. Uh, and so we end up with uh, a possibly uh, P, that is that P is a possible explanation of, maybe a causal, causal explanation of Q. And then we move to inference to the best explanation where we then go on to argue that um, of the competing explanations for, for Q, the existence of which we accept, uh, P is uh, the one most likely to be true for the usual reasons we give in talking about inference to the best explanation. So reserving uh, the notion, the, the label abductive argument for an argument where the conclusion is possibly P, uh, where if you took it as a deductive argument, it would be invalid, you just have to stop. And I, <clears throat> and I do recommend, Dems uh, not Dembski, but uh, Stephen Meyer's book, uh, The Return okay. of the God Hypothesis. Okay. Uh, uh, where he does touch on that. Uh, because I've been treating the two as uh, the two terms, abductive reasoning and inference to the best explanation as synonyms. It's true that um, Peirce, the British thinker, Charles Sanders Peirce, came up with the term, meant something a little different from what we uh, would mean by it, the, the way, uh, for instance, uh, Myers using it. Uh, but that's a little bit of getting into the weeds of uh, you know 19th century uh, philosophy, but for a useful term now, I believe making a clear distinction between abductive argument and uh, inference to the best explanation is useful. And so I'm going to start teaching it that way this fall. I've always thought of abductive reasoning as you, the proposing a hypothesis to try to explain phenomena that are puzzling to you or ones that you want to explain. And I've always thought of inference to the best explanation as 
roughly the same thing. So I'd be interested to, to chase that down a bit more. Well, here, of course, this is a question of how we choose to use terms. Yeah. So it isn't as right. if we've got uh, right. some truth that we're going to settle on, but uh, I still believe it's useful to make this uh, distinction in uh, uh, the way we use the terms, uh, mm -hmm. uh, using the one to label uh, an argument which for its deductive form would be invalid. But say, right. if, if, if we treat it as a non-deductive argument, we could, we could uh, have the conclusion possibly uh, P, uh, and then say, well, okay, possibly P, but we want to get beyond that. We want to say likely P or even definitely right. P. Right. And so for that, then we've got to uh, uh, compare competing explanations for the Q that we acknowledge is true. Yeah, possibly is a like an emotal um, designator, right? I mean, that would be yeah. like, it's weak talking about <laughs> talking about possible worlds or however you want to look at it, depending on how you, uh, what, uh, what is it? S five or whatever modal logic system you're using that uses those kind of symbols. Um, yeah. So you want to get into, we're interested in the likeliness of, of some kind of explanation for when it competes with other things. Of course, if there's FBI agents listening to this, they hear us talking about abduction. <laughs> you know, we might be flagged. But um, so you, you, uh, what's on this sacred page? You mentioned the sacred page, Curtis. Well, as Curtis, uh, what's on the sacred mentioned? Page? It was originally it was just one page. Uh, although <laughs> uh, my well, I felt so frustrated in the earlier years of teaching logic, where I would give a student an A in the class, and by the end of the semester, as far as I can tell, the student hadn't learned very much, hadn't really been changed. And so I thought, let's uh, let's uh, write up the key items of knowledge that I want students to take on board and put it on a single page and just jokingly call it the sacred page. Uh, and I did a single page, but that was going to be inadequate. So I kept adding to it. So it became like 16 or 18 pages. Um, I haven't expanded it uh, in recent years because uh, I wasn't trying to make a book. Um, right. But it, it covers the things that I mentioned before. Uh, understanding an argument as a basic unit of reasoning, being able to uh, distinguish arguments from non-arguments, being able to classify arguments uh, as deductive or non-deductive, and then some of the major types of each, uh, analyze arguments, and a big section on evaluating arguments. But again, it's just a few 18 pages or so, and uh, uh, one thing I've added to the course Curtis didn't have when you took it is an oral exam on the oh. sacred page. Really, uh, I can hit them with, uh, or, you know, great. give me an example of this type of argument and uh, comment on this or that. They really need to know the sacred page well. Oh, that's inspiring. That's good stuff right there. Yeah. Well, it's fun too. Oh. Although yeah. I'm getting lazy and I asked my TA to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, uh, Lucas, whether you would have enjoyed that, but because it is time consuming uh, if you have a lot of yeah. Students. But in a way, I envy when the TA does it because. Um, it's a way to get to know a student also. It's That's true. I haven't hadn't given oral exams in years. When I started teaching at Viola, there wasn't enough 
money in the budget for a full-time additional position in philosophy. Mm -hmm. And so they had me teaching philosophy in a little Greek. Uh, and um, I remember using uh, some oral exams uh, for translation in second year Greek. Mm. Um, and I don't remember whether that was a success or a failure. It was so long ago now, or maybe my mind is conveniently uh, <laughs> blanked out, erased the failure. But uh, I don't think I've done oral exams since then until I started doing this with uh, the sacred page. Um, but I think as a teacher, uh, and and you both know this, as a teacher, you, you, you want students actually to learn something. And mm -hmm. it's very easy to teach in a way in which students don't either don't learn much or don't learn much of value. Um, and uh, that's easy to, to do in logic. It's easy to do in logic. Hmm. Um, uh, well, I, I, I imagine the Monday, Wednesday, Friday format does lend itself to your method of uh, what you said was carving out little chunks uh make the quantity as small as possible at one time so that it would almost be that they have to try not to learn it <laughs> um did you do you find that to be the case that the monday because they're short class periods they're they go by like that well me. Uh, i hadn't thought of that link what i'm talking about okay. by trying to keep the content uh small in quantity I'm thinking of the content that I wish them to retain the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. It's not possible to teach, at least it wouldn't be right to try to teach, uh, uh, be a professional failure to try to teach intro to logic without covering a, a rather large number of topics. Yeah. Uh, but uh, to but not, have... all at, not all at one time. <laughs> I've taught logic classes that were scheduled for four hours at oh a time. My. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that'd be yeah. miserable. Over eight weeks. Community, oh community college students in Los Angeles. And, and uh, you know, w one ex experience, well, I think that was actually a, it might have been a logic class. It might have been an ethics class. I can't remember. I think it was an ethics class, actually, the one I'm thinking of. But, one of the uh, classrooms that we had was the cafeteria at the LA USD building in downtown Los Angeles, which is, it has these massive columns that uh, obscure and occlude their vision of the very tiny chalkboard that they wheeled out and it was actually missing a wheel and the other one you know it was like one of these shopping carts at walmart it was like <laughs> and <clears throat> that was my chalkboard for 80 students oh my so you know anyway that's what i meant was... didn't take logic yeah. well yeah i but logic, math, actually almost any subject to go on for four hours. Uh, yeah. What can you do? What do discussion. I do? <laughs> yeah. But you had no choice, right? It was a sign right. to be done. Right. Well, I guess I had a choice not to get paid, but I was I was going to get paid. So I, <laughs> I did it, you know, and tried to feel good about it. But I have to be honest with you, I didn't feel good about it at all. When You know, when you talk about application, uh, Dr. Chalky covering it different topics. That's one of the things I remember uh, 
endearingly about the class is, is uh, the, the different arguments that you would present um, for us to uh, apply our newly found skills to. Uh, one that I remember in particular is one of the, one of the first ones, I think, uh, in the semester that I took it was, was uh, something along the lines of our students here to, uh, our students consumers or our students uh, you know, to be tutored or something, you know, something like that, something where, uh, it, you know, the, who, who's in control here, the teacher or the student <laughs> customer uh, yeah. is always right. So if they're yeah. customers, right. <laughs> yeah. The argument, the pro and con arguments about teachers requiring attendance in class. Mm. Yes. Uh, yeah. That's, that's what you're referring to. Yeah. 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 Do, do you take attendance? Yes, yes, I, I do. And, uh, you know, during the pandemic, uh, we were required to take attendance. And we had, to, you know, we had to have seating charts. And, uh, and well, during, during the part of the pandemic, we were actually allowed students uh, on campus okay. and with uh, uh, social distancing. Uh, we had to take attendance partly so that if someone was absent, we knew where in the classroom the person was. And if someone, no, we had to have the seating chart uh -huh. so that if someone got sick, we could then uh, let the authorities know who could then inform the people who sat within less than six feet of him so that they had been exposed and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I'm sure glad that's behind us. <laughs> A few wow. months ago, we got free of the masks. Um, Praise um, God. It was yeah. This this semester we started with masks. Uh, oh, we, we, yeah, that's done uh, for now. Gosh. Oh no! Don't say for now. Doctor Chucky, what uh, textbook are you using now? Well, I've used for uh, the current edition of uh, uh, the Art of Reasoning by mm -hmm. David Kelly. In fact, he's I guess virtually retired now, and they have a. Uh, Plus the uh, fifth edition has a, a new writer. It's been revised considerably. Her name is Debbie Hutchins. Uh, and it's an excellent textbook and the revisions are pretty good. Uh, I think she worked hard on, on that. Um, two volumes? Pardon me, it's The Art of Reasoning, David Kelly. Is it two volumes? No, it's, it's, one, it's one volume. One volume? It seems like it was two volumes when I was back in my day. Well, uh, there's a there reader. A, that goes there, with there's it. a little reader that went with it that's still available, and I do okay. use I do use some arguments from that. Gotcha. Um, uh, but uh, logic textbooks again are not exciting. Um, <laughs> no. And, uh, do you ever find things that you disagree with in a logic textbook? <laughs> well, it's interesting that you mentioned that when they were developing this fifth edition. Since I used uh, that. A text for some time. I got asked by the publisher to comment on some of the material they were developing for some online material to accompany the, uh, the textbook. And there were these philosophy games and so on. Uh -huh. And I was working one of them. And I finally determined that, and at least as far as I could tell, that um, it was a huge logical error. I forgot what specifically it was and what they'd set up. And uh, uh, I finally just gave up on that. Uh, but they had the good judgment, the publisher did, of keeping the really crazy stuff that might not work as options available online. 
with the text itself uh, being a little more traditional and, and reliable in that way. But what did you mean partly though by things I disagreed with? It's kind of hard to disagree about modus ponens and so on. So you guys <laughs> right. Well, take for example, informal fallacies. Um, so informal logical fallacies are mistakes of inductive arguments. And if you're trying to follow this and you don't know what an inductive argument is, and maybe you're having a hard time because these are technical terms, I, I'm sorry, there's not much I can do about that because you, you haven't taken logic with Dr. Chalky yet, but there's a, the way some of these fallacies are defined sometimes in some of these textbooks like for example um there's uh there's oftentimes included i should have just brought brought out uh some of these textbooks that i'm talking about um a a fallacy involving a question complex question or something like that well i just covered that questions cannot even be premises let alone an argument and if you define a fallacy as as a mistake in a in an argument then it's hard to see how any kind of question could be a fallacy so, for, well, so those kind of things yes i i share your concern about some of those uh like the classic appeal to force um yeah that's another one that i i, mm -hmm. I talk about yeah, yeah may it be thought of as an argument at all and you call it yeah. You call them, that they, are, <laughs> they are called informal fallacies, uh, yeah. uh, but some of them are fallacies. Uh, well, let me use the example of appeal majority or could be called appeal to large numbers. Um, uh, is only a fallacy if you treat it as if it were a deductive argument. In other words, uh, uh, most people in history have believed in a God or gods or some spiritual reality. Therefore, uh, there is a God or gods or some spiritual reality. In other words, if you took it that just because a large number or majority of people right. believe X, therefore X is true, that's mm -hmm. clearly a fallacy. But right. uh, it's not a fallacy, but it is. it still might be a fairly good non-deductive argument to say, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an ancient piece of apologetics, say. Uh, the idea that many people believed in a God, therefore probably there's a God. You have to stick in probably or mm -hmm. some equivalent word yeah. to acknowledge that you're not offering a deductive argument, but it's right. non-deductive right. or informal reasoning. And mm -hmm. it is still of value. We, we can't function without both types of reasoning. All you know in the history of um, universities, uh, higher education, uh, right through the Middle Ages, all they did was deductive reasoning in terms of what they taught. It wasn't until the early modern period that uh, uh, non-deductive or what we can call inductive reasoning came to be uh, respected and used. But yeah, I share your uh, yeah. frustration with some of those. At, yeah, uh, gotcha. Well, that's, yeah, I think it's just the way it's presented in the book. Some of these books, like Appeal to Forces, it's really a threat. I mean, it's, if it's, it's like, you got, you got a nice family. Therefore X is true. You know? Well, okay. You're just, I don't know if anybody, if, if, if I really felt threatened uh, and I could tell it was a threat, then 
I don't know if I, it's meant to be an argument to get me to believe something. Like I still believe not that I believe what you're telling me. It's just that I know that if I don't act as if I believe it, then I'm something bad's going to happen to me. There's a consequence. Yeah. yeah and and you're, you're right about that. And I think you agree further that in the case of appeal to force, which as you say, is a, is a threat. Um, and so you're right. If we treat it as an argument, the conclusion is, uh, um, I should, I should yeah. uh, behave in a certain way. Right. But uh, in that case, That's it's not crazy. a fallacy. It's a prudential argument. Yeah, right. You know, it, it's your money or your that's life. Right. Okay, let me take it over, that classic. Uh, well, that's reassuring to hear that because that's exactly how I teach that part right there. Well, um, uh, I'm, we're, I'm, we're both correct, shall we say? <laughs> we can all agree to be correct. Um, when, I, when I do point out things, I little things like that that I think I, I disagree with in the textbook. Sometimes that's a little unsettling to the students who might otherwise look at the textbook as if it's the Bible, um, especially if they don't really believe in the Bible, but they, they look at this as like, we're, what, wait, hold on. We're not allowed to disagree with logic. Well, they're just people, right? They're trying to get at it's a, and it's a teaching opportunity to, to talk about what it's like to try to cobble together something that 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 is a logic textbook what is it that we're dealing with how do we know that logic exists and that this stuff is legit it's not because some guy said so you have to see the merits of it on your own um like you were saying the the tools that you try to give uh your students i think you mentioned well, you're not giving these tools to your students. You're, you're asking them to notice. Helping them sense, discover sense, the tools. sense perception, memory. I think you said testimony. Notice that reasoning, these are tools that help you find truth that would help you deal with the world. And then with reasoning, the basic thing you're dealing with is an argument. And of course, that's a technical term. Some people are listening to this and they might think, argument. Oh, geez, there's a lot of argument here. A lot of people arguing. It sounds like the house I grew up in and I, it's not very pleasant. Yeah. Arguing isn't good. Well, that would be a one sense of an argument. That just means two people maybe yelling at each other, two or more people, depending on how big your household is. <laughs> but, um, but that what you mean by argument is um, and what, people who teach logic mean is it's a it's a basic unit of reasoning it's a set of premises that are taken to support a conclusion inferentially so um i i've noticed that a lot of teaching logic is getting students to pay attention to how words are used and how they're defined do you have a lot of definitions on the sacred page <laughs> How many pages is the sacred page now? About 18. Uh, 18 pages. There, there are lots of things that I don't do in the course for time's sake. Okay. Um, uh, like to talk about the relationship of logic to language. We don't really get into that um, hardly at all. Uh, again, it, critical thinking covers so much territory that, uh, as you know, any teacher knows you've got to 
make a few choices, certain things you must address, but you can't address everything you'd like or even uh, a significant part of what you'd like to address. Um, but I want students to retain something of value. And the more yeah. stuff you hit someone with, the less they will retain uh, mm. of the total that they have received. Uh, so I do repeat the most important parts over and over again, hence the sacred page. And other things we go through once, and some people will retain some of that, but most, most of them won't. Um, <laughs> Uh, Dr. Chalky, uh, do you give quizzes? Do you give, I think I know the answer to this, but for people listening, do you give quizzes? Do you give uh, many midterm exams? One major final exam? Is there a paper? Is there a presentation? What kind of... How do you examine? Yeah. Well, yeah. It, what, what, are you, what are you doing to hold the students' feet to the fire to get them to learn? And, and how do you approach the assessment part? Well, I've done different things over the years, but for some years now, uh, there are six in-class exams plus uh, an oral exam and then a daily assignment. Um, I used to give lots of quizzes, but uh, as you noted with a brief class session, don't want to take time uh, for that. Although I used to have fun for a while. I had fun with quizzes. I decided it was boring having like a 10 point quiz. And so I decided to make the quizzes worth a thousand points. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, I just had fun. Yeah, you lost 300 points in that question and so on. I did that for a while, but the course was worth a hundred thousand points. And that all those heroes after a while. I mean, I had some fun with it, but uh, I wasn't really helping students. I was just keeping myself from being bored. <laughs> but, um, I don't do quizzes anymore. Uh, just the six in-class exams and the uh, the final. And the final is treated, and that is the oral is treated as the final. Uh, but I have to give it over about three weeks uh, because of the uh, uh, because it has to be done student by student. Okay, I have to ask a question on this because every professor is wondering this. I'll, I'll bet you. For an oral exam, how, what if the student disagrees with the grade? I, I don't know how you, do you, do you record it? How do you, how do you ensure that there's some kind of record about what actually happened in that oral exam? Uh, the only record would be the points given for each question. Since they're not recorded and it's oral, uh, uh, just have to do it on on trust. We haven't had a problem so far. Actually, students, the the oral exam is on the sacred page only. Oh, okay. Uh, part of the course and uh, uh, gotcha. Pretty pretty good results from students. Uh, so, in other words, they uh, they take it so seriously that they're able to see any kind of success, or usually they don't complain about success. Um, but they're able to see if they have a deficiency themselves and then their own conscience prevents them from complaining about a low grade or a lower grade. Is that right? Is that, well, do I have you right on that? Well, perhaps. I mean, uh, you've probably experienced much more, uh, more frequent uh, uh, 
problems with students with issues about grades than, than I have. I'm in, of course, a different setting at Biola. Um, I understand what you're saying. If, if I was in a situation in which there were a number of low grades being given on an oral exam and there was no way to show why a particular low grade was justified, right. that could produce a real difficulty. Um, Especially if you only had like maybe three black students in the class and two of them got low grades and they tended to get low. So the distribution of blacks was lower than the distribution of whites. Some people keep track of that kind of stuff and then they take it to be evidence that uh, there's a problem. There's a structural problem. So because now there's so many things that go into education that have nothing to do with students actually learning, which is the point they, they your, your time is taken up, not in doing what you think is the right thing for the students to learn as for, from a student to professor, professor to student relationship. But, but you're constantly thinking about what the professor's relationship to the administration is. <laughs> And some kind. So I don't know how you. Apparently, you don't have to worry about that. Well, well I, I, I haven't. But I, if I had a problem of that kind, uh, either have to give up the oral exams or have them recorded and made available at least for a certain amount of time after the end of the term. Um, and that would, again, it just hasn't happened. So that's awesome. But yeah, I'm grateful. It's partly being at a, a, a Christian school, but we're not without problems. I did have one student who uh, uh, was unhappy with her grade, not in logic, was intro to philosophy. Um, I mean, I wasn't accused of racism, but um, <laughs> the student uh, felt it was unfair, went to the administration about it. And uh, I like the student. She was very... <laughs> nice and personable and all of that but she didn't work like i just showed the final exam one question worth 25 percent of the points and she did not provide an answer period <laughs> and, well you know you, you have no answer you get no points it's just uh, kind of hard to get around that um uh, she was someone who had been uh congratulated for this or that in her life and uh sort of expected it to continue, I guess, in the academic world, whether she worked or not. But then again, Lucas, you had much more experience of that than I've had. So it's pervasive. Uh, yeah, I think that the, the, I think there's more evidence, uh, more than of systemic racism. I think there's more evidence of systemic grade inflation. And well, that that is something that people don't seem to care about. I've never seen a vice president for the prevention of grade inflation at a university they don't care about it at all there's no check on that whatsoever yeah but that's a question of, of standards and yeah. uh, 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 students are our customers and uh, uh, you know it's uh, the standards have gone down but you know let me just tell you something about my experience uh, in terms of students doing poorly in classes not just logic intro to philosophy being a uh, an example, not so much in upper division courses. Uh, I have surely had 
some students who don't apply themselves to use the language Curtis you used earlier, referring to uh, one of the times you were maybe took intro to logic. Uh, but I have so many students who are struggling with depression, uh, mm. deep troubles at home. Uh, I had one student who was really trying this semester, but he had to work and he had to get another job. I mean, it just whether it's money troubles, family troubles, relationship troubles, their physical health, uh, and uh, you know, there's all this ADHD and so on. So that uh, if a student does poorly, I don't assume that the student is not tried, uh, that the student has simply failed to put in the, the requisite effort. In fact, I think it more likely than not that uh, the students had problems which were uh, keeping him or her from uh, doing a decent job. But yeah, I would love to have higher standards than, than we do, but uh, calling something great inflation, of course, presupposes a standard. And if the standard is you get an A for uh, <laughs> handing in anything, well then, uh, like I have a friend recently retired from being a math teacher in high school, and he gave everybody A's who did practically anything. He was very popular teacher. Uh, but he said right. to me that a lot of them, the backgrounds they came from, if he could get them to learn anything, it was a victory. Uh, and, you know, I can't judge what he went through, but uh, sure. Actually, I'll just say one thing about grade inflation. I like to think of it as grade compression, particularly the A grade, because if you look at people who receive A's for a particular project or course, the range of quality of what the people in the same course from the same teacher got in the same assignments, they ran, and they all got A's, the range of quality is great. So you've really got a compression where you've compressed a number of different levels of quality under the same grade. And the same things happened with mm. uh, the B. Uh, um, and so I think, isn't sure. that partly what concerns you, Lucas? Is it yeah. a little dishonesty in that? Yeah, yeah. Lack of and, truth and labeling. And bound up in that over time. Yeah, sure. I, I would say look at it synchronously and asynchronously, I guess, or however you want to say it. At one time, um, that, that, that definitely is happening. But over time, I think, over time. I think it does result in lower, uh, lower standards. You, it has to. Well, the, the bottom gets, it seems like the bottom catches more of the level below it. You know, well, it used to be that a high school diploma was a big deal, right? Yeah. Then, you know, now it's, then it was the college degree <laughs> and trade school bad. You went yeah. to college and now it's like, what are you really getting out of the college degree? You, now you need a master's degree. And then, I, I mean, I, I don't know where this ends, but um, it's, it seems like there's always pressure to lower standards, not to raise them. And um, I see that as a, an issue of human nature, the way the evaluation is structured, but it's also, I mean, it's, it's a little, it's more complicated than that because there's other factors involved, like all the, all the things you just mentioned. There's all these challenges to student achievement, emotional health, uh, finances, um, attention span disorders, uh, 
they, they're all involved and the character of the student is all, all also very important too. Um, but I worry that the, um, the structures are forming the student in a way they're malforming the student in a way. And, um, that's what concerns me. I, well, I see that I, a lot. I, I share, I share the concern, um, it's happening all over too. It's, it's even happening in boot camp. <laughs> like, like, uh, I was talking to a Marine recruiter. Remember this Curtis, we yes. were having a yes. dinner with this Marine recruiter and he was telling us the stuff that they do in boot camp now in the Marines. I, I could not believe it. There there's a, there's a complaint system <laughs> in place in, in us Marine Corps boot camp. It it's laughable. for people that are having emotional challenges. And my thought is, I cannot. So this is just rampant. It's not just in in school. So I I, I just wonder how you how you deal with the grades and uh, how you how you handle that and how you do you ever get depressed, Doctor Chalky? <laughs> well, uh, it isn't so much a matter of getting depressed as it is uh, grades. I, I I don't respect grades. Mm. Hence the grade in. in uh, compression, that the quality of a person's work, uh, you don't learn much about it from the person's grade. Someone can get very low grades, kind of a, an Einstein who didn't like school uh, or the regimentation of school, you know. And, uh, so the grades don't tell me much about the quality of a person's work. Um, you do learn something if somebody graduates uh, high school, maybe not so much, but from college, if you actually finish a program, that's worth something. Uh, yeah. Maybe not as much as in the past, at least it completed something. Um, uh, that tells you something about the quality of the person. But, right. uh, and not depressed, just I don't respect grades. I remember when my sister was bragging nicely about her daughters, my niece's uh, grades in uh, high school. Um, and my niece is very bright, but uh, my sister thought, oh, look at all these A's. And my sister was impressed. I didn't tell my sister that I was not impressed because I know what's happened with grades and they give them out like candy. Yeah. So I, you know, I, it isn't for anyone in the know, which is a large number of people, it's not actually a distinction. Uh, so you have to look elsewhere for distinctions. That's why what you mentioned, Curtis, earlier describing your some of your undergraduate experience the distinction wasn't any particular grade you got. It was your determination and your completion of, of all you completed. Um, um, so yeah. not, not depressed, but just not impressed with uh, grades at all. Yeah. Tell us about the other courses you teach, Dr. Chalky. It seems like you teach in the history of philosophy as well. It seems like you were teaching um, Greek and Roman philosophy. Yes, Greek and Roman, which I'm doing again this fall, and uh, I've taught medieval, uh, teaching a number of uh, uh, elective courses, a number of courses on free will and related topics, taught one on miracles, cool. uh, and philosophy of religion, um, uh, variety of electives. Well, after this many years, you've had opportunity to do a variety of, of things. Um, what, I want what, to teach miracles again because 
I had to combine that with the general philosophy of religion course uh, for enrollment's sake. And that made me have to water down the miracles part. Mm. But, uh, 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 that's makes me sad to hear that. Um, Dr. Chalky, when you teach Greek and Roman philosophy, what textbook do you use? Well, I assign several books. I, <clears throat> I still use uh, W.T. Jones's uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, first volume of his series uh, mm-hmm. called The Classical Mind. Uh, mm-hmm. I still use that one. I mean, it's an older one, but I... I think oh, yeah. It's great, job. though. It's a great yeah, book. I, yeah, I think it is. And Great, great set, actually. Yes. And... Um, uh, other than that, I, it's mostly the, the rest of it, the primary sources now, uh, from Plato, Aristotle, uh, a variety of Hellenistic philosophy material, including some Stoics, like recently I've had them read a lot of Seneca. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, there's so much, I mean, teaching that course is frustrating in a way because yeah. there's just so much yeah. that it covers and the certain amount of shallowness that comes with it. Yeah. When I was very young and foolish as a teacher, it was maybe the second time I taught Greek and Roman, I said, I really like Plato more than Aristotle, so I'm not going to talk about Aristotle this semester. We're going to spend a whole <laughs> bunch of time on Plato. Now, nobody said anything, but I oh. shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. Uh, that was almost as bad as what I did the first time I taught logic. Uh, <laughs> but I still like Plato better than Aristotle. Mm. Uh, but you don't leave Aristotle out of a, a survey of ancient philosophy. <laughs> uh, do you believe? Do you believe that forms exist, Platonic forms? Is that why? Or uh, let's just say that the position I've always leaned towards is the classical: yes, they exist in the mind of God. But I know that not everyone holds that <laughs> position. My Christian theist, <clears throat> you probably know uh, William Lane Craig is. Yeah. Pushed hard for a kind of nominalism, yeah. um, for the uh, aseity of God. There, you know, there can't be these uh, um, eternally existing, uh, yeah, uh, entities. Yeah, usually when Craig uh, comes out against something, I believe I, it causes me to pause a little bit. But um, he also believes that God, I think, started time, and I've never. I don't know what your position is on time, philosophy of time. I'd like to. Well, Craig's position on time is that God, as God, is timeless. Yeah. But that, um, yeah, he creates time and, in a sense, enters into it with his creation. So you've got both God and himself is timeless. Uh, Hard for me to, because it so makes it to me, it makes sense to ask what happened before. God created time, and 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 on on Craig's view, that that question doesn't make any sense, because well, he would just say he just no before he just was, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure I understand it, maybe, but that's that's like a lot of what Craig writes. I don't know if I understand it. When you when you talk about free will, uh, what kind of sources do you use for that? Oh, over the years, I've used that? a huge number. Um, uh, I I've taught courses on. Um, sort of a general survey of free will related questions. I've taught courses on doubts about free will, skepticism about free will. I taught a course on prayer and free will, 
You talk about you surprised about how that. much there's, there's been uh, uh, prayer and free will. Love that. Were you in that course? Yes. Yes. You were in that course. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And didn't you ultimately wind up publishing some articles or doing a book? I did, on one, that? I did one article on that. Oh, okay. Um, what, was, what was the article? It was about. Was this on prayer and free will? Is that what I. Yeah. Now I'm trying to remember. Uh, hmm. Actually, I didn't. I, I wrote on what we were then calling free will theism. Now we more frequently call it open theism. Oh. Um, and there was a little section in that article on prayer. Um, yeah. But. Uh, so it was on open theism. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I was called the religious adequacy of free will theism. That's what the article was called. And I got a response from William Hasker. He replied, uh, countered what I said. Of course, Hasker's open. Open theist. An open theist, for those who don't know, is uh, something, someone who believes that God does not know the future because there's no future there to be known. Something like that. Well, certain aspects of any, anything that depends upon uh, libertarian free will, God wouldn't know what's, what's going to happen. Um, and so God takes risks according to uh, open, open theists. So a lot of this gets into time, uh, wh- whether time is what, what view you take on time. Yeah. Is the future real? Middle knowledge. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, gets a little technical there. But uh, what in, can you summarize your view on free will and prayer? <laughs> is that possible? Um, well, does I had prayer to start- make a difference? free will itself. For years, I was a compatibilist for many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I became agnostic with respect to uh, uh, any particular free will theory. Uh, it would take a while to explain that. But And I've remained there since. In fact, I finally got a bit tired of continuing to um, uh, work on that topic, sort of a, a dead end uh, impasse in my own mind. Um, so I'm neither a libertarian nor a compatibilist now. Um, I maintain that whatever it is that we need to be deeply morally responsible for the conduct of our lives, God makes sure we have it. Otherwise, he would not judge us. Judge it. Now, that's more a theological affirmation, a theological conclusion from certain things we accept about God. But a particular free will theory, I think, I won't say most people. I better back off from that. Uh, okay. Most Christian philosophers would say, <laughs> that the scripture itself underdetermines any particular free will theory. You can't just go to the Bible. When I was young, well, I just quote a few verses, and obviously, <laughs> I pretty much had that figured out. Um, there's certainly lots of scripture that can be taken that way, but there are others that can be taken in a libertarian way. So, um, yeah. And I also, the, the classic divide between the uh, compatibilists and the libertarians well the divide remains it's not if you will there's still a, a gap between them but it's not as big a gap as it used to be in that uh, uh, a lot of the conclusions that compatibilist thinkers had reached about understanding human freedom and responsibility related ideas quite reasonable and most libertarian uh, philosophers today would accept accept them but that's still going to uh, maintain there has to be an indeterministic element 
uh, and what we do otherwise. We're not responsible. For instance, one of our graduates, Chris Franklin, did you know him? He was yeah. asking. Yeah, we went through the program together. Okay, well, Chris Franklin, as you know, is a philosophy professor now, and he published so the title is something like a modest libertarianism. I can't remember the exact title. Uh, uh, fantastic book, very impressive. Uh, it still didn't take me away from my agnosticism, but um, truly an impressive piece of work. He's a libertarian. Um, when you yeah, say the word thinker. libertarian, you're not talking about the political position vis-a-vis oh. the government. It's a, <laughs> no, a that's technical right. term. It's a technical term in philosophy referring to, I'll let you take it. <laughs> yeah, uh, non-deterministic theories of free will, uh, <clears throat> such that nothing counts as a free choice if the antecedent facts about the world uh, uh, guarantee that that choice takes place. So <clears throat> uh, they might've made it likely, even highly likely, but they can't guarantee that it would still count as a libertarian free choice. Yeah, uh, no. you can be a libertarian and political philosophy and be a compatibilist. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, now, I think- now for, I, I'm remembering, uh, and since we're talking about your, your agnosticism on this subject. Hold on one re- sec. One sec. We're back. Okay. So you were saying, Curtis, I, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Yeah, no, that's okay. So, so some, so some time ago, I remember you sharing a, uh, I don't know what to describe it. The disparaging, a, a dis, being disparaged that you were talking about your agnosticism on the topic of free will, and then having some days later to talk with a parent or some administration about about why you were teaching at a Christian university as an agnostic. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah the low attention span so since we brought it up here you know i don't want people thinking you're an agnostic <laughs> can you give us that clarification be trending on twitter <laughs> yes. yeah well uh, let's make a distinction between noun and uh, adjective here yes. <laughs> we normally use uh, the word agnostic as a as a noun it originally was uh, someone who was neither an atheist nor a theist but just would say, I don't know whether there's a God or not, so that, that middle position, but uh, as an adjective, I can just say I'm agnostic about X, Y, and Z. That is, I don't have a position on something. I'm not sure about this or that. Uh, I am sure that we are responsible, deeply responsible for how we live our lives. Some human beings at some time can't mm-hmm. function at that level. That's a whole separate issue, but in general, human beings are uh, responsible agents, uh, but uh, the standard competing theories, different versions of compatibilism, libertarianism, I'm just not able to, to settle uh, that to my satisfaction. And as I say, I um, really stopped working on that. I do a little reading, but I've stopped working on it in any serious way. Uh, partly because I'm not, you know, how in philosophy we talk about worrying about something and worrying mm-hmm. about this issue or that. I'm not yeah. actually worried about it. So if you're not worried <laughs> about it, you're not going to devote a lot of time with it. Uh, you know, if I was really doubting my agency as a human being, you know, and my responsibility, <laughs> then I would get back into it. That is some inside baseball right there. That's, if you, if you're in philosophy circles, you hear philosophers say the worry is, you know, a lot. You know, <laughs> Who's worried about <laughs> that's that? hilarious. Uh, Dr. Chalky, uh, your your educational background, did you go to Biola as an undergrad? And then how did you uh, do, what was your yes, right, graduate training right like? out of right out of high school? Um, uh, church I grew up in, you pretty much, if you were serious about Jesus, you were going to go to a Christian college. And 
Mm -hmm. uh, Biola was one. And what church was that? Uh, well, it was a, a Baptist church in my hometown, San Luis Obispo, California. And uh, uh, was it First Baptist? No, that actually I was born into First Baptist, but uh, got moved over to Calvary Baptist, which was a more fundamentalist. Uh, uh, the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches, GARBC, was a fundamentalist group, and that's what we moved to when I was fairly young. Um, and uh, and actually, Biola was considered liberal <laughs> by our church. <laughs> I remember I came back from like my freshman year to uh, you know home from school at, at, at from Biola and. Uh, we're supposed to give, well, the, somebody had put the Biola student newspaper on the church bulletin board, a piece from it that showed some people in chapel playing guitars. Oh, oh how scandalous. And I knew they put it down because guitars were evil. Oh. And, and so I, with nobody looking, I ripped that thing off the wall and threw it in the <laughs> I got called before the deacons uh, for being disrespectful. Mm. Um, and I remember standing up, we had to give testimonies. So part of what you did, the college students came back and they would give testimonies and prayer meeting. I gave a testimony saying how great Biola was and good for my soul. And then later was told that was not a legitimate Christian testimony. Wow. Uh, so uh, wow. for me, going to Biola was going into the wild <laughs> place <laughs> where you never know what heresy you might encounter. Uh, not that I thought of it that way. And Biola certainly in the 1960s was not... Uh, or today was not a hotbed of heresy. But, um, what stands out to you from your undergraduate years there? Was there any particular class, any particular professor, any particular? Well, there were a experience? number, but actually the greatest influence was from my Greek professor, Dr. Sturz. Um, uh, I took a lot of units from him. Uh, he's a very godly man. Can you spell the last name? Yeah, S-T-U-R-Z. Uh, Harry, Dr. Harry Sturz. He was a specialist in uh, 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 textual criticism. And uh, almost to the point he influenced me so much, I thought, well, I want to become a textual critic. And he, he um, you know, working with manuscripts and so on, not interpreting scripture. But he right. invited Bruce Metzger from Princeton to come and spent three hours with us. And, uh, Bruce Metzger was the leading... Uh, uh, He's a, critic. he's a huge figure in, in, in New Testament studies. Yeah, he's a very important figure. Unfortunately, one of his students is Bart Ehrman, if I remember correctly. Uh, but um, uh, Dr. Sturz, wonderful godly man. But there were a number of wonderful godly people. And I could go on and on, but we don't want to... Uh, uh, <clears throat> Did, did you grow up in uh, San Luis Obispo? Yes, that was a great place to grow up. We had no crime that I've ever heard about. Police had nothing to do that I was aware of. Uh, good climate, good schools, people treated each other well. You could go out trick-or-treating as a kid, and the worst thing that ever happened to me is somebody threw a water balloon at me once, but that was another kid. Uh, <clears throat> there were no dangerous adults running around poisoning our candy or uh, and if you stop at a Christian home, you might be given a testimony. Um, and uh, it was a great place to grow up. Mm. Uh, 
how did you get interested in philosophy? By taking, I suppose it started with intro to philosophy at Biola. Uh, one thing I remember was walking out of class one day and it was on free will. It was our first unit. No kidding. And I was walking out of class and I was thinking, boy, there are good arguments on both sides here. This is bothering me. <laughs> and what I didn't realize, I was having a philosophical experience. I didn't choose it. I couldn't have chosen it, but there it was and never managed to escape from that. Not that I tried, but so I'm just grateful to God that I got a job teaching philosophy because um, uh, you know, free will, free will was your gateway drug into <laughs> the hard heroin of teaching logic. And, um, yes. So do you, uh, do you remember the name of the professor? From your oh uncle? yeah, it was Del Hansen, who then went on to be my colleague for many years. Oh, certainly... so uh, Dr. Hansen was the one that you took intro from. From yes, I, I did back when he was Mr. Hansen. And uh, did you? Uh, was your classroom in Sutherland? <laughs> no, well, actually, then it was uh, what we used to call Mar Marshburn Auditorium. I think it's mm -hmm. named after somebody else now, but. Uh, oh. um, uh, and then you did graduate school at Fuller, right? Tell us at the story. Fuller, I was briefly at USC, UC, and UC Santa Barbara, Talbot, and Westminster Seminary. Uh, wow. Finished That's degrees. a lot of traveling. Yeah, I jumped around a bit, but I'm grateful for the variety. I think I learned a little bit from the, the variety. How long were you at USC? Oh, I was there just one semester. And... I definitely did not uh, choose to stay. Uh, there, That's where I met Dallas Willard. Though, oh, really? Appreciated. Uh, did you study uh, with him? Uh, I did not have a course from him, sorry to say, but I got a chance to chat with him just once but it was uh, memorable and much appreciated um then then you you see santa barbara how how long were you there three years three years wow that's a long time in the philosophy department yeah yeah but there was only one theist in the department then I mean, there were some like 16 or 18 faculty members and there was one theist, a Roman Catholic, that's the best of my recollection in that entire faculty. That was before the great increase in the number of, of Christians getting into, into philosophy. Right, right. Um, and, and the theist was, had a, a link with Alvin Plantinga. They were, um, and I remember uh, Plantinga was working on his version of the ontological argument and it was, mm -hmm. nothing was published yet. And he sent it to my teacher who shared it with us students. I don't think I understood it at that point, but. Uh, what was his name, the theist at Santa Barbara? Oh, what was his name? It if might have been. If you can't remember his name, just his social security number would be. Okay. <laughs> it it, it might have been Forgy, F-O-R-G-I-E, but that could have been somebody he wrote something with. Okay. Uh, but uh, I could dig it up, but it's been so long. I mean, I haven't been there yeah. Since uh, Gerald Ford was president, <laughs> <laughs> speaking of political philosophy, so and you you studied at Westminster. Did you go all the way back to was it Pennsylvania? Yeah, yeah right, uh, just outside Philadelphia. Did you study with Van Til? Was he there? Yes, I had Van Til his last semester teaching, um, and wow. uh, what a privilege! That's a wow. big name. Yeah, yeah. What was he like? 
is he was a nice man, but uh, I only got talk with him privately once, and I you know, requested it. But um, he was seventy six, I think. Then he lived into his nineties, but um, you know he was past his prime, but he was still sharp. And uh, um, but it was yeah, it was. Uh, I just didn't remain in fully in the reform camp. Uh, and it was partly, and I'll, I'll mention this. How long uh, were you at Westminster? Uh, just one year. One year, okay. And I, there was a, uh, George Mavrodis was uh, a professor of philosophy at the University of Michigan, a Christian. Yeah, I've heard the name. And back, yeah, back when uh, there weren't very many open Christians in uh, philosophy. And he came to give a talk at Westminster. And... Um, he was uh, using philosophy to argue against part of the Westminster Confession of Faith, namely the statement about scripture that, uh, you know, everything we need to know about God is either, I don't remember the exact wording, is either directly in scripture or by good and necessary consequence can be deduced from scripture. Uh, everything we need to know is going to be there. So um, uh, Professor Mavrodi said, what about Proposition J, namely that James is... Um, uh, a part of the New Testament. Is that found in scripture? And well, no, it's not. You can't <laughs> do that. And uh, so I, I I couldn't remain in a straight reformed uh, denomination because while I in one sense believe in sola scriptura, I couldn't believe it in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, uh, well, I, I'm an, an errantist, or I would not still be on the Bible faculty. Uh, I agree with those who say that uh, a piece of scripture, I mean, if something is part of the Bible, has canonical status because the church led by the Holy Spirit declared it to be such. Um, Makes sense. Otherwise not. And, but you don't have that from Westminster Confession of Faith or any of the other... What? What did you do your dissertation on? Finally, you have a PhD, uh, free, right? Free will and free will and belief, uh, which um, mm. still fascinates me. And, um, and you and did that at I was a compatibilist. Yes, I did. I was allowed to do it there. Um, allowed to do practically a straight philosophy dissertation. Cool. The PhD is in. Uh, well, they call it philosophical theology. Uh huh. Well, you have so much philosophy credit from other schools. Um, yeah, I, I, I could have stayed at Santa Barbara. I, I, so they didn't kick you out? <laughs> no, no. I chose to take the comprehensive exam for the, the – one of the reasons I left was there were some troubles in the department not having anything to do with me. But uh, I, the way the program was set up there back then was that you wrote what was called the quarter paper. When you've done all the other requirements, you take one quarter, they run the quarter system. And you write a paper that was meant to be perhaps eventually a chapter in your dissertation. That paper had to be approved by the faculty. If they disapproved it, and maybe you got one chance, right, then you were out. And they were, <laughs> when you, they rejected everybody as uh, quarter papers. And uh, I wow. think part of the reason that I, in fact, I was getting tired of commuting, uh, from, oh, you were commuting. I was commuting. I was already teaching at Biola by that point. What? I was, wow. You had a master's degree. You already had a master. Yeah. Oh, yeah. what was your master's in? 
Uh, Velocity? Yes. Or... Oh, no, from where? Wait, uh, I'm confused what you're asking. Oh, how did you get the job at Biola? What was your, you had a philosophy? And I was degree? working on a PhD. Oh, okay. Right. Back gotcha. then, there weren't very many evangelical Christians available. So, gotcha. They kind of picked so who you was... were. You were living near La Mirada or in Southern California? In Northern Orange County. Yeah. Oh, wow. Anaheim. That is a long way to commute. Yeah. And I went to church up there too. Two hour drive. <laughs> yeah, I went, I was uh, part of a church ministry. Up so there. you, you, uh, drove up there like a couple times a week. Did you spend yeah, the night? Yeah. Okay. yeah. And, uh, yeah, I spent the whole weekend then. there. Yeah. It was, I'm glad I was young. I couldn't survive something like that now. Uh, what kind of car did you have? A 1965 Dodge Coronet, of course, no power, anything. Uh, uh, wow. <laughs> going up the Caneo grade on the way back from Santa uh -huh. Barbara, if you know that. Oh, yeah. I would try to build up speed because I'd be in trouble. <laughs> and the problem would be if somebody in front of you wasn't going too fast for building up your speed. I always made it, but at times, you see, the car would overheat. Oh, and yeah. So oh, uh, this, this, was a, this was a, could be a problem. Uh, I'm glad, as I say, I was young. Uh, no kidding. <laughs> it sounds exhausting. Yeah. Well. Well, when you got to Fuller, is there anything that stands out at Fuller that uh, you'd like to share? Uh, any memory that you have that that was uh, key oh, for were, your development? Well, there were interesting experiences of various professors. One of them was Dr. Daniel Fuller, son of the founder oh. and father of. Steve Fuller, who'd been a roommate of mine, who is now a missionary in Abu Dhabi, mm. um, a Christian ministry there. Um, uh, I had to write a paper for Dr. Fuller, and it was on Jonathan Edwards' Freedom of the Will. And uh, I wrote a long paper, and I felt really good about it, and I submitted it. And he called me and said, this is not at all what I wanted. <laughs> and he said, you didn't, you didn't really hear what I was saying. And he wanted a completely different, he was nice, but he wanted a completely different type of paper. I had taken what he'd said before as suggestions as one possible approach. He didn't mean it that way. He meant it mm -hmm. as this is the way you do it. And so I had to go back and do the whole thing from start doing exactly the approach that he wanted. Again, he was very nice about it. But uh, I think one impact of my teaching has been that uh, I like, I don't, I do set certain requirements for papers, but I want to give students more freedom than I had with that paper anyway. Uh, uh, and you were working on a typewriter, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my typewriter gosh. And, oh, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. We're not living like in the old days when Thomas Aquinas did his work and so forth, but typewriters, <laughs> the old typewriters. Um, you know, you just rip a sheet of paper out again and start a paragraph again if you got it wrong and weren't happy with it. And I did my dissertation on a typewriter. Yeah, and you only have one copy, right? Or how did you figure? Did you Xerox uh, you, it you, immediately? You get a photo. You, you get a photocopy, um, and um, and then hire someone, a professional typist, to do the final copy. Make sure there were no errors. Um, how much did that cost? Well, I, I don't remember, but I'm sure it seemed like a lot at the time. Uh, you know, really, the technology we have today is, as we know, it just makes a lot of things much easier. You can actually devote more of your time to thinking and less to the 
mechanical aspects of uh, yes but but think before there were even typewriters and you had to do it by hand we had a professor at biola died years ago was a missionary in china before the communists took over china and in 1949 as the communists were sweeping through his area he had to flee he was working on a a, a doctorate and he had his dissertation just about finished you know one copy of it and he had to flee and couldn't take essentially anything and it was left behind. He never did finish this, you know, because there were no notes, uh, no text. Uh, today, of course, you would have it digitally preserved if you had to flee from the Russians, if you were happen to be studying in Ukraine, wow. your, your dissertation would be fine if you didn't get killed by a missile. Put it on a thumb drive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah put it on a thumb drive and get out of uh, the cloud. Or just have it in a cloud somewhere. But yeah. uh, uh, but that's amazing. Uh, yeah. Those little details really are cool. Give you a sense of what you had to deal with. Just no AC trying to get up the Caneo Valley. <laughs> I mean, th this is physical, arduous stuff. Philosophy. It's not just sitting around looking at the, the, out the window, you know, you're, you're really struggling with this stuff and, and finding things in the library. You had to use the card catalog, right? And to do research, to go yeah, in and pull yeah. volumes of bound periodicals out and make yeah. it's very physical. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. That uh, and then when the computers started to come in, you'd have to pay like for time on a computer and um, wow. give keywords. Please, uh, you know, research these keywords, and then they would find some references. But then you'd still have to go back to the library or do. Um, uh, you know, free exchanges between what do they call library interlibrary loan yeah, interlibrary loans that was through the mail. Yeah, <laughs> I had to wait for the mailman to come. <laughs> yeah, and that um, Dr. Chalky, if you as you look back at your life, um, if you had an opportunity to choose again, whether you would do that same thing with your profession, would you do would you choose teaching? again uh would you would you well the answer to, to that is yes without the slightest doubt but boy there are a lot of things uh in the way i've taught and how i handle my intellectual life that i do a lot differently i mean hmm. like i think most people i can think back to a lot of things i should have done better and messed up and uh, failed, missed opportunities and all of that, but uh, still very great. Now, in terms of uh, being able to teach, not the slightest regret. And I hope God will give me a little more time. Uh, you know, when Amen. you get to my age, the health issues, blah, 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 you, you wonder how much more time. But uh, one yes. thing about uh, tenured positions is they can't get rid of you. <laughs> they can't get rid of you. Uh, um, and uh, if permitted, I'd like to go on a medical. I don't know how much longer it'll be, but uh, uh, I'd like to. So, uh, do you want to share any regrets? You don't have to, obviously, but we're just interested in. We're trying to preserve a record and archive for future generations. So, you've touched so many lives over the years, and there's going to be sadly people that come to Biola later that uh, never get to meet you, never get to know you and and so we're just trying to leave an archive for the future for people that um want to remember you and um 
get to know you a little bit more. But you know, if if you don't want to share anything, that's understandable. Well, did you say regrets? Yeah. Do you have any regrets? It's just interesting. With regard to my working life. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Whatever, whatever you want to say. It's just interesting. Well, I, I wish I'd worked harder and much more wisely than, than I judge myself to have done. I, I certainly, I know that's very general, but um, I am not by nature a hard worker. I have to make myself work hard. Mm. Um, and also when I think about ideas, anybody's in philosophy, uh, I pace around and so on. And, <clears throat> and I get so emotionally caught up in some of the stuff that I get not very efficient. Um, uh, mm. And in a way, I suppose there's much I could have done about that. Um, I'm the same way. It's partly a matter of temperament, you know, yeah, yeah. Mm. and. Uh, I relate to that a lot. Yeah, you know, and I, 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 I have acid reflux and so on. And you, uh, at some point you just physically uh, have to stop and, uh, uh, but there were plenty of times I could have done more, and I know that. Um, so, Dr. Chucky, I so relate to that, the yeah. emotional Same. thing. I, I, when I study, I can't help but be emotionally involved in what it is we're talking about. I mean, this is just incredibly important stuff. I, I just love that you said that you're emotionally involved. I think that's awesome. It makes you uh, relatable to me. Well, uh, and I suppose we're wrapping up here shortly. I, I do hope at some point, since I know you've done a lot in philosophy of law, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, that someday you'll come speak to us at Bio. <laughs> One of the things that we've discovered <laughs> is people are pre-law. They sign up for uh, the um, political science major, which is a great major, but they don't recognize how valuable philosophy can be for them. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, you know both sides of it. I mean, you're not an attorney, but you know right. law and and uh, the relation of philosophy to law and uh, um, and the value. Again, you're also a logic teacher. Um, um, yeah. Maybe someday you'll you know contact us and come give us a talk. Because you said you're in Southern California, so maybe. Yeah. So they could give Orange a, County. Yeah. Okay. Give us a talk and encourage our students and help us a little bit. We'd enjoy that. Well, we're having um, Darren. Go I don't, I can't say his last name. Gu Guerra. Guerra. Oh, oh yeah. Is it Guerra? Uh, yeah. We're having I him on. Uh, it either, but yeah. <laughs> Darren Guerra. On, we're having him on in a couple of weeks. So maybe I'll mention what you, uh, that topic. Well, we've, we thank you so much for, um, spending your morning with us, Dr. Chalky, and letting us re revisit some warm memories that we've had of you and learning a little bit more about you. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was great seeing you both again and uh, mm -hmm. um, made my day. Oh, that's <laughs> Ours awesome. as well. Oh, that's good. Curtis, good did you have you. anything else that you wanted to uh, no, I mean, we can wrap up. I, I, Dr. Chalky, I, I, uh, really appreciate everything, um, over the years and it's been wonderful to get to talk to you again this morning and hopefully we can do this again. Um, maybe about something more specific or, uh, some of your work. Yeah. 
Thank you. I think a lot of people would be interested in the prayer and free will thing because a lot of yeah. people are thinking, wait, there's theories about free will. What? I mean, that, yeah. that's, a, <laughs> right. that's the level some people are on, but right. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Chucky. Okay, thank you.